And good morning. God is a faithful, faithful God. Uh, Pastor Tony is away today. They went down to Florida to uh, visit with uh, his wife's uh, family. And also one other announcement. If you're interested in membership, uh, please let me know. Let me know and we'll schedule a class and we'll get you, get you on board. Now if you stand with me and uh, we'll ask that you turn to someone right next to you and tell them how glad you are that they're here this morning. Okay, I invite you to take your... <clears throat> I invite you to take your hymn book now and turn with me to hymn number, hymn number 11. <clears throat> A mighty fortress is our God. Hymn number 11.
when we hear of accomplishments by those in our uh, congregation, we do like to acknowledge those. Um, this past Friday, there was an archery tournament up at State College. It was for the state uh, championship, and um, Grant Schlegel uh, came in second in high school, and the team itself came in third, and so we congratulate them. And then the boys' basketball, they took the Tri-Valley League. Is that correct? Yes, they did. So we want to congratulate the boys' basketball. That was a, a few weeks ago, I believe, that they took, they took that title. So uh, we do want to congratulate those uh, who have um, done these accomplishments. Now, if you have things that have taken place um, and you know of those, you need to let us know that so that we can make those announcements. We don't always get uh, some information, but we're happy to acknowledge those who have uh, done things uh, along those lines. A couple of prayer requests. Uh, first of all, keep uh, Peter Rank in prayer. Uh, he's with us this morning, the third. Um, he had uh, an injury this past week, uh, separated collarbone and breastplate, and um, had surgery, um, but is mending now, but is going to be immobilized for about the next six weeks with his arm kind of in a, a little sling. So uh, keep him in your prayers. Good to see Nancy again uh, in her pew. Uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. We thank the Lord for that. Uh, Dave and Kim Booker were uh, down in Florida this past weekend uh, visiting Dave's brother Joe, who has cancer and is not doing well. But they had a good trip. It was a good visit. And we thank the Lord that he worked all of those things out. There's one other new uh, man we've included, Amanda Lebo's uncle, Mark, who was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so we've included him now on our prayer list, as well as the others that have been here uh, and on this list for some time now. Uh, please do pray for the folks that you see on this list, all needing us to come before the Lord on their behalf. Father, as we pause for a moment this morning to pray, uh, it's good, Lord, to know that you have given us the great privilege and access into your presence. Lord, we come to you through Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is our mediator, the mediator between God and man. Father, we don't claim to come to you except through him in the power of your spirit. and But we are thankful that you have allowed us to come to you, to bring to you our praises and our petitions. Father, we are thankful this morning. We are grateful for who you are and all the great things that you have done. Lord, you are a sovereign, awesome God. And we have come this morning to worship you. Father, you are worthy of our praise and our adoration. And as we come, Lord, we, we do want to acknowledge who we're speaking to. You are the holy, holy, holy God in which men have fallen on their knees before. Men, Lord, have cried, Woe is me, for I am undone. As we approach your greatness, your holiness, Lord, men begin to see themselves as they really are. You're perfect. You're awe-inspiring. And so, Father, we humble, greatly humble ourselves before you this day. And thank you that you as the great God, the faithful one, you have welcomed us into your very presence. Father, we thank you also for the fact that we can intercede on behalf of one another. That, Lord, we can bring before you folks and ask you, Lord, to touch and to heal and strengthen. And we do pray for Peter that, Lord, you would very quickly, you would heal him. That he can get back in onto the gym floor and, and play dodgeball once again as he was playing when the accident occurred. So we pray for his strength and his health. We thank you, Lord, that Nancy is able to be with us again this morning. Thank you, Lord, that she is able to be here and worship with us. Uh, Lord, we're thankful, Lord, and we miss those, Lord, when 
they can't be with us. And so we thank you, Lord, for her and pray that you would continue to use the therapy as she strengthens. We pray, Lord, also for Joe Booker. We pray, Lord, that you might comfort him in these days. Lord, we know that the cancer, Lord, is moving through his body, but we pray, Lord, that you might draw close to him, help him to be encouraged and to feel loved by you. We think of Amanda's uncle as well and pray that, Lord, as the surgery will be scheduled, that all goes very, very well and they can remove this cancer completely. So, Father, we thank you that we can come before you today. Thank you that we can come and worship you. Thank you, Father, for the salvation which is ours. A salvation, Lord, which is by grace and through faith. Father, I trust that each person here today knows you in a very personal way, knows that their sins are forgiven, that they're washed because of the blood of Jesus, and that they have a home in heaven prepared for them. So continue to use, Lord, our time. Lift us up through music, and may you be honored and glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you stand with us as we continue to worship the Lord this morning?
one topic that Jesus speaks of more than any other. Now you might think that Jesus spoke more about prayer than any other topic that he spoke of. Jesus often would go off by himself up into a mountain somewhere or a secluded place and there he would pray. Jesus spoke a lot about prayer. Pray without ceasing. Or you might think that Jesus spoke more about keeping his commandments. Uh, he said the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe hell and, or heaven. It's pretty important. Pretty important topic to know that there is a place in the future where mankind will live. But he spoke more about money than any other topic that he spoke about. One out of every ten verses in the gospel is about money. One in every seven verses in the gospel of Luke is about money. Why the focus? Why did Jesus target money? Well, it was not because of maybe some of the modern preachers that you hear today who preach a prosperity gospel or prosperity theology where if you just come to Jesus you're going to have a really nice car and a great big house and a full bank account as a matter of fact Jesus's teaching was the polar opposite Jesus said foxes have dens and birds have nests but I don't even have a place to lay my head but Jesus spoke a lot about money and so did his half-brother, James. You know, the book of James is such a practical, practical book. And James gives us a lot of tests to test the genuineness and the authenticity of our faith. He speaks of the tongue. It says that up from the heart, the tongue speaks. The tongue speaks what's down in the soul. And the tongue is a test of the genuineness of our hearts, the genuineness of our faith. But money is the same. James deals with money. And how I acquire my money and how I use my money is a good measure of my spiritual health. It's a good measure of the genuineness of my faith. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll come back and we'll try and dissect these verses. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. 
The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Before we get to point number one, we need to define a few things. First of all, the rich. Now listen, you rich people. We don't know whether these were believers or unbelievers. We don't know whether uh, they know the Lord or not. There's no consensus in commentaries. It's interesting because James, as he begins this section, he doesn't address them as brothers and sisters, as he does, for example, down in verse 7, where he says, be patient then, brothers and sisters. It's most likely that these were not believers. There is a literary in Scripture, it's called apostrophe. It's not that little thing that you write when you're writing a sentence, but apostrophe is a literary, literary device that speaks to those outside the church in a letter that is addressed to those inside the church. Now, James is writing to the 12 scattered tribes. He's speaking to and addressing the church. But when he comes to this section, he's speaking to those outside the church, unbelievers, for the benefit, however, of the readers, of those he is addressing. So I believe that the rich he's speaking of here are not Christians, but secular merchants, wealthy landowners, the very same ones who back in chapter 2 were oppressing the church. They were dragging Christians into the courts. Do you remember that time when we spoke about favoritism? Remember the illustration that James gave when he said that, you know, here is the Christian assembly, and into the church comes the rich, wearing fine jewelry, wearing nice clothes, and the usher says to that rich, listen, you come with me, and escorts that rich man to the best seat in the house. And then in walks the poor. And this poor man comes in, and the usher takes him by the arm and says, oh, you sit over here in the corner some way, somewhere. It's that group that James now addresses once again. Those who were oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the poor. Those who were dragging the poor into their courts, using the legal system to take advantage of these who were needy. Now, this is not an indictment on wealth, per se. We need to clarify that. The Bible doesn't support the idea that a man ought not be rich. That's not what James is saying here. It's not wrong to have money. But what James is addressing is those who trust in their riches, those who live for their money. It's not the money that's the problem, is it? We know elsewhere that it's not the love of money, or it's not the money, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, Solomon writes, he who trusts in riches will fall. It's not the riches, it's trusting in the riches. It's the love of money. It's that uncontrolled desire for wealth. And the focus of these was money over God. Just as we looked last week at planning, that we need to plan our lives, but plan them including God in the plans. It's money over God. It's money excluding God. So let's look then at the warnings that James gives to us. He begins by warning us against hoarding. <laughs> a warning against hoarding. In verse 1, it speaks of misery and judgment that is going to come upon these who are rich. The 
words that are used here are similar to there in Revelation where it says there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the agony. Why is that? Why? Have you ever wondered why it is that the rich and the famous, they, they, they seem to have no time or room for God in their lives? Why is it? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he said, it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. It's those who, who recognize their spiritual poverty. And oftentimes it's the rich man who is blind to his spiritual poverty. He's blind to his sinfulness because he's proud of his accomplishments and very unlikely to humble himself before God. As unlikely as it is for a camel to crawl through the eye of a needle. So James speaks about the hoarding of wealth. That it's sinful to hoard wealth, to have an obsession, to be selfish, and to cling on to your money. And James says it will rot. He uses the word corrode. That this is what will happen when you begin to hoard your wealth. Your wealth becomes worthless. In other words, what you have stored away, believing it to be good for a future date, is something that you won't be able to rely on. Remember the man last week who had that great harvest. He planted a crop and he had a, an abundant harvest. And he had grain he didn't know what to do with. And so rather than thinking, you know, maybe there's some people I could give some of this to. Maybe there's some poor out there that could use a little bit of grain. And I'll just use my smaller barns and I'll save a little bit, but I'll, no, no, that's not what he did, is it? He said, this is what I will do. Now that I have all of this grain, I will tear down these little barns and I'll build these great big barns and I'll store all of this grain in the barns so that for years to come, I can eat and drink and be merry. And God said, you won't see the light of day. Hoarding, James says, is sinful. Now listen to what James is not saying. James is not saying not to save for a rainy day. James is not saying we ought not invest for our retirement. James is not saying we ought not plan for unplanned emergencies. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that if a man does not provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. He's worse than an unbeliever. We need to provide for our own. Or we, we are worse than an unbeliever. But there's a difference between saving and hoarding. Hoarding, someone said, is a disorder that is characterized by excessively acquiring things and an inability or unwillingness to get rid of them. Now, when we think of hoarding, this is what we think of, is it not? We, we think of a room that you can't even walk through. We think of things that are collected in excess and an unwillingness to let go of things and throw things out into a dumpster. We need what you see in this picture. We need the food. We need the clothing. But that's one thing. Hoarding is a completely different story. And when it comes to money, we can hoard. And we can keep. And we can say to ourselves, I'm not letting loose. I'm not helping anyone but myself. I might have a surplus. I might have a little bit of excess. But you know what? I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. The idea of acquiring as much wealth as you can the attitude, it's all mine. To trust it, to love it, to live for it, 
to say, I will never part with it. I will never give it away. James says is just wrong. Back in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, uh, Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and you'll love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now in the old NIV translation, now I use the new one, but I have the old one in my office, they actually capitalize the word money. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe you don't have that translation. It's not in all translations, but in some translations, they actually capitalize the word money to personify it. Because there are those who look at money as their God. They look at money as something that can do what God does. God is all-powerful. My money is all-powerful. God should be my provider, but I'm provided for because I have money. God protects, the Bible says, but I feel protected by my money. Money gives me freedom. It delivers me. We have a tendency, some people have a tendency to look at money as can do what God does. It's that idea of trusting in wealth, trusting in riches, trusting in money, which leads to a lack of trust in God. These are the men that James calls rich. These are the men who hoarded, and as a result, their clothes rotted and their gold and silver corroded. But he has another warning. It's a warning against stealing. He warns against stealing in verse 4. Where he says, look, the wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your fields, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Here were the rich who were cheating their workers out of their wages. They were putting in a good hard day's work but they weren't being paid for the mowing of their fields. This man uses dishonest means to rip off the laborers who were under him. He was taking advantage of others by not paying them. I want to read a quote. Day laborers worked paycheck to paycheck. And if those in this day, if they did not work, their families, they did not eat. To withhold their wages meant they literally were robbing them of their daily bread. Here were men who were stealing from hard-working laborers. And the very cries of these harvesters have reached the very ears of the Lord Almighty. We read throughout the Bible that when injustice abounds, the cries of the innocent and the cries of the oppressed reach the ears of God. God knows when injustice takes place here on earth. Now, the direct application of verse 4 would certainly be to employers. You have workers who are under them, but not paying them fairly. But I think the principle that is stated here in verse 4 can be applied more broadly. As we think about ways to steal. The Bible says borrowing money and not paying it back is stealing. In Proverbs chapter 37 and verse 21 it says, The wicked will borrow money and they will not repay. What about stealing time from an employer? Have you ever done that? Do you use time at work to do personal things? You're not giving an hour of work for an hour of pay? Have you ever stolen uh, office supplies from your place of employment? Or you fudge on an expense report? See, all these different ways are ways of taking things, stealing things, cheating people out of their money. 
You see, James does, just does not speak of how we use it, but how do we acquire it? How do we get our money? And then the last warning is the last two verses where we read these words. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Why would the rich, why, why would these men who have everything, why would they keep wanting more and more and more? It seems to me there's really only one word to answer that question, and it's greed. Greed is wanting more and more and more, not ever having enough. Note the imagery in this verse, in verse 5. They fattened themselves like ignorant cattle, unaware of the coming destruction. Like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, who just couldn't get more, more power, more wealth, more riches, more women, but never content. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Lives that are given over to greed and selfishness. Lives that are given over to luxury and self-indulgence. Those who say to themselves, we're just going to get it all and just eat, drink, and be merry. We're going to build bigger and bigger barns and put all of our grain into those barns so that we can live happily ever after. I haven't watched Shark Tank in a little while now. I remember a few years ago, I was kind of into the show Shark Tank. And some of you know the show, they have the billionaires and the millionaires and they're all on this panel and then the wannabe entrepreneurs come in and they have a product that they're trying to sell and trying to get an investment from these very, very, very rich men and women. And I, I think of one man, Kevin O'Leary, uh, maybe that name rings a bell to you, but I say to myself, when you have billions <laughs> and you kind of work over this poor fellow who's trying to become an entrepreneur, you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's that word for the day that I stumble over. You have billions, and you're like trying to suck a few dollars out of him? There's only one word for that. It's greed. Here's a man who lives for money, and he's not ashamed to say that. Billions and billions. Some people just can't get enough. It's always about one more dollar. There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 of a rich man. And the parable goes like this. The rich man, he was, he was dressed in purple, and he wore fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. Every day this man lived in luxury, and he dressed apart. And at his gate was a beggar. His name was Lazarus. And he sat at this rich man's gate day after day, just wishing that he might have a crumb that dropped from the table of the rich man. In the, at the end of the story, the rich man is judged and has said that he had his comfort in this life and therefore he would weep and wail in misery in the next. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because money becomes his God. Money becomes his God. So James warns. He warns of hoarding, of stealing. He warns us of being greedy. How we handle our money, how we acquire our money, says a whole lot about who we are as followers of Christ. Now, before we end this morning, I want to end on a more positive note. These were all warnings that James gives, but let's end on a more positive perspective. Let me share three biblical principles that we could take with us. Three biblical principles that relate to finances. Number one, 
I might possess, but it's God who owns. I possess, but God owns. A word that might summarize this principle is stewardship. Stewardship. You know, the word stewardship goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God created heaven and earth and everything in it. And then he created Adam and Eve. And he said to Adam and Eve, I want you to till the land. I want you to work it. I want you to care for it. Adam and Eve understood that it's all God's. God owns it all. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 24.1, we read, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We need to understand something, that everything we have, it's God's. He just lets us borrow it for a short amount of time. And that includes money. And God says, be good stewards of this money. It's interesting that recently as I've been preparing, these songs um, kind of come into my mind. The old songs that you know, we, we don't sing quite often. And the song that came into my mind as I was sitting at my desk and working through this first principle, I possess but uh, God owns. What song do you think came into my mind? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know that song? Can you bring that up, Pete? It's a good old one. Let's try to sing it. If you don't know it, just follow the old folks be sitting beside you. Because they all know it. They all know it. Let's sing it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. He is my father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that he will care for me. But he does. He owns it. But he loans it to us to use. The second point is this. And it, the, actually, these next two principles actually come out of this first one. We need to recognize that as we go through life. That what we have is on loan. God owns it. We possess it. Meet the needs of others. We have an obligation to meet the needs of the poor and needy. Now, I said earlier, if a man does not care for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. We have obligations to care for our own. You know, God often gives us a surplus, does he not? God often provides us with a little bit of extra at the end of the month or maybe a tax return or uh, maybe a bonus check. Or maybe God has just blessed you. You know, I, I feel sometimes when I say these kinds of things to you folks, it's like talking to the choir. Because I know in this church, over all of these years, when we put a white box a white church out in the foyer, and we present a heartfelt need, you guys always have stepped up to the plate. There's something about a need when this congregation feels it, that you will step up. I've never been disappointed to take the money that comes in a white church and hand it to someone, because it's always been above and beyond what I could expect or think. But that's what we do as Christians, is it not? That's what we do as the body of Christ. We're to help others who have a need and who may be poorer than we. The third principle is this. Invest in God's kingdom. Invest in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth. 
but lay for yourselves treasures in heaven. Every time you walk into this sanctuary, you pass white boxes on the doors. You can't miss them. Maybe coming in, you can't. But going out, or coming in, you might miss them, but going out, you can't. You know, it's, it's interesting to me when uh, folks like the Gideons come and um, they ask about an offering, you know, helping them out. And I say, well, we don't, we don't pass plates. You don't pass plates. No, we, di- we just have white boxes. On the- what? And that works for you? <laughs> I, I, I say, yeah, it does work for us. It really does. It works for us. And God has blessed us richly, you know, with just white boxes. But every time you put a $20 bill or a check in one of those white boxes, you are investing in the kingdom of God. You are investing in God's kingdom. And you know what? The return is so much greater than even the high rates of CDs right now. (laughs) It really is. The return is so far greater than investing it in the stock market. Jesus said that you can't serve both God and money. You'll love one and hate the other. You'll hate the one and love the other. You can't serve God and money. May God help us to take what he's given to us and use it wisely to be good stewards and to acquire it honestly. Father, we thank you this morning that you have blessed us. Lord, who of us could say that we're not rich? Father, we're thankful for that, that you have blessed us in so many different ways. I pray, Lord, that we, as we move through our lives, that, Father, you would always be number one, that money would never creep in to take your place. And again, Father, I thank you for this body of believers who are very generous in giving. Father, it's very much appreciated. And we thank you for that. Giving to these folks a good heart. Now, Father, we thank you for who you are, all the wonderful and great things you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Page 451. Let's sing this together. We'll sing all four stanzas and we'll be dismissed. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, (coughs) the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Decide now to follow Jesus, turning back, no turning back. Father, Father, as followers of Jesus, we are thankful that, Lord, you give us guidance and you give us direction in life. And I pray, Lord, that the words that 
James has spoken, that, Lord, they would guide us as we use the finances that you've given to us and help us, Lord, to be good stewards of the things that you've entrusted. Again, we thank you for being a wonderful, wonderful God. In Jesus' name, amen.